0: The Wall Street Journal last week had an article that focused on the unusual demand that we've seen this year for Christmas tree farms, you know, the kind of trees where you go to the farm and you can pick out the one you want and cut it down yourself and then bring it back to your home. It turns out that so many people have tired from being confined by the coronavirus shutdowns and the changing regulations all across our nation that this frustration has led them to go all out in decorating and focusing on signs of hope at Christmas. And with more and more people home for longer periods of time than in most years, higher numbers of people from North Dakota to Vermont have offered to uh, shop at these Christmas tree farms. The article also pointed out that the average Christmas tree takes about 8 to 12 years to grow and develop to the sizes that we prefer. And that means that when there's an unusually high demand that is faced, the Christmas tree farmers cannot simply go and cut down more trees as the demand goes up. If they do, they'll wipe out next year's crop that's still developing and still growing to the size that they hope for. The result of all this has created a worldwide shortage of Christmas trees, especially the kind that you would cut down yourself, because American tree farmers are responding to the higher demands in the U.S. by shipping fewer trees to other parts of the world. Now think about this. That need got so great that in Hong Kong, a six-foot noble fir tree was going for $1,500 on the streets, and an eight-foot Christmas tree in Hong Kong was costing more than $2,100 on the average. So we find ourselves in a year of unexpected Christmas surprises. Welcome to Christmas 2020 at North River. Our theme this month has been our unexpected Christmas, Uh, obviously because this has been the year filled with all kinds of unexpected surprises. But part of what we've been doing all month long is looking at some of the unexpected features in the story that we are so familiar with, the story that's retold every year as we look at the gospel narratives of Jesus' birth and arrival. Tonight, I would like to add one more piece to that theme as we focus on the unexpected path that is at the heart of the Christmas narrative. So whether you are joining us here in person at North River Church or whether you are online from your own home, our aim tonight is to add to your Christmas celebration and to cause you to think in ways that align our hearts and our minds with the purposes of God. Now, I want to tell you that tonight's topic, this unexpected path, was prompted by a conversation that I was in with a group of friends about a month ago. The conversation was going along with a whole bunch of different uh, subjects that were, that were part of the mix, and then it took a turn when one guy expressed his deep frustration over the duration of this COVID pandemic. It was, if you will, an unexpected rant. And so at one point, he raised his voice and he began calling out, why doesn't God just step up? Why doesn't he fix this all at once? How much does God expect us to suffer? How long do we have to endure this? And there was a quiet after he broke out that way. Nobody was quite sure exactly what to say in that moment. I've been thinking about that for quite some time. And I want to share with you some responses to that question. Why doesn't God just step up? Here's the nugget at the heart of what I want to say tonight. Well, God doesn't cater to our demands to step up. He chooses to step in and to step down to redeem us. We're going to talk about the unexpected path of Jesus at Christmas. And here's the first discovery that we make, that God doesn't cater to our demands or expectations. What do we do with my friend's rant toward God? Perhaps you have heard somebody else who has responded to this epidemic in a similar way And I would imagine that all across our country, there are a number of people who are very, very frustrated with God, and probably right here in this room, and many more who are watching online, deeply frustrated with God or disappointed with God in a season like this. When we hear a challenge like this for someone to step up, it usually implies that the speaker feels that someone is not living up to previously agreed-upon expectations, So anyone who makes a claim like this seems to be saying that God is failing or that God is not doing his job. In this case, such a rant implies that God's job is to take away all life-threatening viruses or anything that may threaten our lives, or here in the United States, our pursuit of happiness, the thing we perhaps cherish most. Well, some people may assume this is God's job description, I have never found that place in Scripture where God has taken that on and where He has said that it's His job to save and rescue people from every calamity that comes and to take away every difficulty in life. Now, lest we be too harsh with contemporary rants against God, we need to look at some of the cries and laments that come from the Bible itself from Old Testament leaders. For instance... 700 years before the time of Jesus, Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Isaiah, in effect, is saying the same thing that my friend did that day. God, why don't you just split the heavens and come down? You could fix things right away. You could show such an awesome display of your power all at once that all the problems would go away. King David expressed several laments toward God in the Psalms. In Psalm 4, he wrote, Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. The way that David starts that off, he's throwing out a demand to God. Answer me when I call to you. Sometimes we, too, have those expectations that God will respond exactly when we dictate to him. In Psalm 10, David cried, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then again, in Psalm 13, David adds, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, if you're counting... Those were four how-longs in two verses of Scripture from the Old Testament. It's interesting that a number of years ago, the rock band U2 wrote a song called 40. The subtitle is How Long. And in in the lyrics of this song, Bono actually combined David's how-long cries from Psalm 13 with a paraphrase of Psalm 40. And in their concerts for a number of years, They would get towards the end of the concert and they would save 40 for the end. Think of Gillette Stadium with 70,000 people standing and singing at the top of their lungs how long to God, effectively singing the worship psalms and crying out for the justice that God will one day bring. Now, I have to tell you, That is the mood and that is the cry of the Old Testament leaders right up until the time that Jesus comes. In effect, what Isaiah was calling for, what David was calling for, was, God, will you send an answer? Will you split the the skies and come down into this world? And I think of that when we come to Christmas. Our frustrations often are based on an incomplete understanding of God's plans. But we can take comfort that the God that we meet in the Bible is a God who sees, a God who hears, and a God who responds at the right time. Often our human demands upon God are mired in the misery of immediate distress, while God's plan centers on the eradication of evil by elevating His Son's eternal reign. So God doesn't cater to our demands or expectations on our time frame. But that doesn't mean that God isn't at work. You see, while Bethlehem slept, God was at work. That's our second discovery. Luke writes these thoughts in the verses that were just read for us. He went there with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time for the baby came to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Have you noticed the patterns in the Christmas cards that we send and receive year by year? Now, some of them are really seasonal cards. They're not really Christmas cards. They're about the snow. They're about winter. They're about good wishes in this season. They say nothing about Christmas. I'm talking about the cards that have a Christmas narrative scene on them. They all tend to project peaceful, calm, tame images. Have you ever noticed that? Yet, the world that Jesus was born into, the Roman world, was anything but peaceful. The famous Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that Rome delivered, was always at the end of a sword. That was fine if you were a Roman citizen and you were a person of great privilege or wealth, but not so much if you were from a conquered people group. And Jews? Jews in Roman provinces were merely tolerated at best and often marginalized. Rome ruled through fear, force, and fatal consequences, even crucifixion. Despite images of impressive empire building and massive highway construction projects that began to connect the world, great signs of social distress and moral destruction were on display in the darkness of Rome. And then God went to work. God often seems to do his best work on the night shift, sleeping Resting Bethlehem missed what the shepherds saw and heard that night, but Luke's gospel tells us this simple phrase, the time had come, and God began to unveil his plan. Right there while Bethlehem slept, glory filled the Judean sky. Suddenly the starry sky was illuminated with an awe-filled angelic announcement So the shepherds came down from the hills to bear witness to God's best work. While Bethlehem slept, God unveiled his work. It began with a young woman who said, yes, Lord, and with a man who claimed Jesus as his own. And with those two things, God began to change the world. With these two responses... God started his rebellion against evil, sin, and darkness. That was all God needed then, and that is what God still looks for today. Women who respond to his tap on the shoulder, saying, yes, Lord, how can I serve? And men who dared to boldly claim Jesus as their own. And God is still changing the world one person at a time, one home at a time, with people like that. You see, we don't serve a God who steps up when we demand, but we do serve a God who steps in and who steps down to redeem us. Christmas reveals a God who steps in and who steps down. Now, those thoughts come to us from the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 2. There he wrote, In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had And what I'm most concerned about is verse 6 in here where it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul, in some of his letters, explains some of the theology behind the gospel descriptions that just give us a simple rendering of what happened. Paul's letter to the Galatian church reveals God's sense of timing. So in Galatians 4.4, 4, he wrote, But when the set time had come, God sent his Son. As if to say, God had a plan all along. We didn't know exactly what the right time would be. People in that day didn't know, but God knew what he was up to. And when the set time had come, the right time, God sent his Son. Our cries to God are always heard. But he acts with his own sense of timing. So we wonder, what made this the right time? Perhaps it was the way that Rome had created roads and one business language that was beginning to connect a lot of the world. Perhaps it was because no one was expecting much from sleepy Judea at this time, let alone little Bethlehem. Perhaps this was about finding the right young woman who said yes on the night that she was visited by an angel along with the right man who would boldly claim Jesus as his own son. Mary and Joseph had very important roles. They would go on to protect and raise Jesus in quiet places until the right time for his public ministry to begin. And then Paul's letter to the Philippian church adds a sense of theological perspective. It's in that one verse, verse 6 who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. An earlier translation of that verse ends it just a little bit different, differently, saying that, God didn't, that uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It gives the idea of, of clutching, of, of holding on as if he would never let it go. But the reality is that Jesus let go of all the splendor of heaven in order to go through the risk of being born and brought into this world as a vulnerable child and to enter into our race. And so while Bethlehem slept, God entered human existence. The agent of creation, if you can imagine this, became part of the created. The one who had the very nature of God took on the very nature of a servant. Soon, those who opposed God's plan and who opposed Jesus would come. A jealous King Herod would seek to destroy him before Jesus turned two. By his early 30s, big government and big religion would conspire with one of Jesus' own disciples to nail him to a cross. But God's plan was greater than their cruel conspiracy of the cross. The resurrection would crush the evil one, cancel the cross, and crown Jesus as the rightful ruler who reigns over a kingdom that is without end. And one day, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Until that day, God is looking for one thing in this world. Women who say, yes, Lord, when he calls you into service, when he calls you to use the gift that you have or the talent that you have or the opportunity that you have. And men who dare to clearly and boldly claim Jesus as their own in the midst of a world that either knows Jesus only casually or that would oppose him. And with those two kinds of people God is still at work changing the world around us. He changes us from the inside out. And He doesn't do it alone, He does it through the use of people who respond. So I have a question for you. Have you ever noticed that Christmas calls for a response? Zechariah. Had a choice when he was met by the angel in the temple whether he would embrace this good news that his elderly wife was going to have a son, and that their son would have a name that God Himself had picked out, the name of John, and that John the Baptist, their son, would become the forerunner who makes way for the Messiah. Mary had a choice when she was visited by that angel and he said something very complex and profound is going to happen to you. I'm not going to explain how it's even going to happen but the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. What does that mean? Mary must have wondered. And you're going to be with child. Her response is, how can this be? I'm I'm a virgin. Don't worry about that. I'll take care of it all. I just want to know What's your response? And she says, yes, Lord, may it be to me as you have said. I read this year after year after year, and I am convinced those are some of the most courageous words ever spoken by anybody who walked on this planet. Joseph had a choice. We know that Matthew tells us he was considering divorce. That meant in the era of betrothal there was a year-long period where there had been a contract agreed upon by the family members, by the fathers, and these two were pledged to be married. We're told here by Luke they weren't even married as they made their way to Bethlehem, which makes me think that the visit from the angel in the midst of Joseph's dream came late in her pregnancy. And they hadn't even had time for a shotgun wedding. Imagine that in in this kind of world, in the first century world, Mary is in the ninth month of pregnancy, headed off with Joseph, and they're not even married. And all of the social stigma that would go with that. And he gives Joseph one job. Take Mary as your wife and claim this child as your own and raise him as your son. And Joseph steps into the mystery and the risk of all that God was doing in the world. I believe that God is looking for women who say, yes, Lord, and men who claim Jesus as their own. So why not complete the spiritual side of Christmas before we go on to all the rest of the joy-filled part and the secular part and the gift-giving part by doing what Joseph and Mary did right now? There's a prayer that's going to appear behind me and on the screen that you're watching at home. And I wonder if wherever you are, if you would have the courage and the boldness to pray this with me. And here's my thinking. When Joseph and Mary responded this way, their lives changed forevermore. And I believe that if you mean what we pray together, Even if this is brand new to you, God will begin to work in your life, too, in a very profound, life-changing way. Here we go. Almighty God, the God of Christmas, right where I am, I want to say yes, Lord, to your plans for my life. And right now, right where I am, I want to step up and claim Jesus as my own. He is the Savior I need. He is the Lord who calls me to follow him. He is your son, very God of very God. And I will humbly serve the one who served me first. Lord God, my prayer this Christmas Eve is that you will not only meet us in this place, but that you will call people who've been casually sitting on the fence, to consider how deeply you want to involve each of us in your ongoing story of how other people hear the good news of Jesus and how we fall deeper and deeper into grace and into the life that Jesus came to give and that you begin to transform every day and fill it with purpose and meaning. And I pray that you would do something very, very profound in the lives of a number of people all over this region and as far as people are listening and watching because you are the one who taps us on the shoulder and who calls us into your family and gives life its greatest meaning. So thank you, Lord, for creating hearts like Mary's that said yes and like Joseph's that stood up and claimed Jesus as his own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're going to celebrate communion tonight, one of the last things we're going to do together this year. So for those of you who are here in the room, when you came in, you got one of these little communion kits. If you feel very, very carefully, there's a little thin plastic layer on top and if you pull that back, not not the silver shining one, but the little plastic one, there's a little wafer in there. And pull that out. When we read the gospels, it tells us that on the night that Jesus shared the last supper, the last Passover that they would go through together with his disciples. A point came when he broke bread and he distributed among them and he gave it and he said, you've been celebrating Passover year after year, but this is something new now within Passover. This is my body. This bread is my body which is broken for you. Eat of it and remember me. Let's remember Jesus as we eat together. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus has come in the flesh. When we partake this way, we go through the reminder that he asked us to go through, remembering and thanking you that he came and took on a real human body and became one of us in order to redeem us. And then if you pull back the silver part of that cover, take the next part on that same night jesus took a cup of wine and distributed it to all of the disciples and again they'd been doing this year after year and they knew that each of the four cups that were shared during passover had a different meaning one of them was known as the cup of redemption and he held this up and he said this is my blood No, it was wine in the cup. The next day he would shed his blood. But for the rest of their lives, and now for the rest of our lives, when we do this, we look back and it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us and how far he was willing to go to redeem us for his body and his blood paid for my sin, your sin, our sin. And when we drink this together, we proclaim the Lord's death and his resurrection again. Let's do this together. Lord, thank you that at Christmas, we get to celebrate the the wonder, the mystery, and the marvel of what you have done in bringing Jesus into this world, into human existence, and into our lives. Thank you that Christmas always points to the mission of Jesus and why he came. He came to liberate people, to set us free, to really live with all the fullness that can come from a confidence in knowing that we are right with God. And that one day when he comes again, he will gather his own and he will make this world right. And all the things that we cry out for, will one day day be set right and the world will be restored to its original glory and beauty. Thank you for the hope of redemption in so many ways. And we look forward to when Jesus returns. Lord, I ask that you bless the families of North River Church, those who are physically here, those who are watching wherever they are. Allow us to have the greatest celebration ever because we understand what's at the heart of it all. I ask that your blessings will fall on the single folks who are part of our church, on the the older folks who might be alone and shut in somewhere, as well as even the small and large families too. Allow us to know that we are connected by you, we are connected by your spirit, we are connected by your redemption and by your grace. We are connected by your love. Thank you for all of these gifts on Christmas. In Jesus' name. Amen.